0: Section 15 of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The Anti-Democratic Radicalism of Thomas Carlyle, Part 2. Nor is anyone likely to deny that on one point Carlyle was here indubitably right. The problems were difficult they were deeper far than the politicians imagined. It is easy now to see that the reforms of 1832 and the years that immediately followed could not fulfill the democratic hopes that were built upon them. Hence disillusionment and embitterment, hence chartism. Hence the cry for a new and still again a new reform bill. Hence in due season the advent of socialism. Let justice be done to Carlyle here, he saw with the clearest eyes as mill likewise saw and as the politicians did not see that the problems were deeper more stubborn more formidable than political reform could solve they were social questions this is what carlyle saw he saw it and he said it when brushing politics aside he declared that the real question of the day and he might have added of many a day to come was the condition of england question it is quite another matter however when he went on to revile democracy as impotent or as he called it paralytic one must not to be sure say dogmatically that he was wrong democracy is still upon its trial yet it is not premature to suggest that there are some respects in which the damnatory verdict is to say the least unconvincing thus it lies on the surface that in his unrelieved diatribes carlyle ignores the possibility that a democracy can learn its business we have seen that the educative influence of democratic institutions was the sheet anchor of mill's optimism it is absolutely nothing to carlyle he believed indeed in popular education he passionately pled for it but it did not come into his horizon as it did into that of mill that there is a civic education that comes of the free citizen's contact with affairs this is the most glaring gap in Carlyle's politics he does not know how to value the civic spirit if he turns his eyes on citizenship at all it is only to see the evil incidents the shibbolus the palaver the stump oratory the schwemeraille the ignorance the levity the recklessness the evils need not be denied mill saw them and yet mill was convinced and both mazzini and green as we shall see shared the conviction that it is of the essence of all sound national life not only that the state should count on the subject's loyalty but that the citizen should find his life as he can never find it in the circumscribed round of private interests in and through the duties which are also the responsibilities of civic status carlyle to be sure believed that the individual man be he never so lowly was capable of much of nothing less indeed than of writing on the eternal skies the record of a heroic life it is his limitation that he seems to shut his eyes to the fact that far short of the heroic life and nearer hand Lies what Green was wont to call the life of the good neighbor and honest citizen. Similarly, with these flouts and flings at democratic ignorance, it is easy to emphasize the complex difficulty of political and social problems, to point to the ignorance of the mob and draw the obvious inference. It was the way of Lowe when he fought against the extension of the franchise, as it was the way of Maine when he deplored that the franchise had been extended it is the way of all the critics of democratic government first they magnify political questions as enough to perplex the wits of experts then they proceed to ask if roughs and clowns are likely to find solutions carlyle's indictment is substantially the same except that in the rich rhetoric of his onslaught he leaves all other critics far behind the issue as thus stated is however all too easy the real issue involves certain further considerations which in barest justice to democracy are not to be forgotten one of them is the fact sufficiently familiar that political questions come before the democratic electorate in a vastly simplified form when Gladstone was arguing the case for extension of the franchise, as against the unbelieving intellectualism of Lowe, he laid it down as axiomatic that the people must be passive. This, he said, was written with a pen of iron on the rock of human destiny. He did not mean, of course, that the people had nothing left them to do, but only that they were not called upon to play their decisive part till by much discussion elsewhere in press platform parliament private life the questions sub had been thrashed out and reduced to their broad issues nothing can be more evident than that the tariff problem or an agricultural holdings bill or a project for graduated taxation if these be taken in all their baffling intricacies and far-reaching consequences pass far beyond the mental compass of the average elector even the chosen representative has before now been beholden to the expert in one and all of them and if the matter ended there there would be nothing left for democracy but to humble itself under the carlylean rod if it does not if it still clings to the claim to manage its own affairs it is on the comparatively modest ground that the average man can be trusted to cast an honest and sensible vote after many a voice and many a pen have for many a day been labouring to make the broad issues level to his comprehension nor is this an unreasonable expectation it is not unreasonable because the qualities to be looked for in an electorate are far from being purely intellectual in any great community it must always happen that the members of the diverse ranks classes and conditions bring with them to the work of self-government their own characteristic virtues and defects they are severally placed in positions of advantage and of disadvantage Carlyle, alas sees only and all too clearly the disadvantages and the defects who will venture to hold a brief for the learned class when he recalls the dry-as-dusts of the carlylean pillory or for the nobility when he remembers the graceful idleness of mayfair diversified by the sweat of melton mowbray or for the plutocracy when his thoughts run to the whole broadsides delivered against cash nexus and midas-eared mammonism or for the plebs when he resuscitates those epithets we have seen but it is not upon defects and disadvantages that questions of suffrage turn if this were so the whole world might well be disfranchised the one point worth discussing is whether beneath the defects which need not be disputed there cannot be found in the members of all classes in the state those positive qualities that make the citizen these qualities are not intellectual merely nor is it difficult to specify what they are one is the ability to set sufficient value upon the broad public ends upon which all political effort is directed and among these the very ends to which carlyle himself has so opened the eyes of his countrymen that they cannot again be closed one has but to think of personal independence tools to the man who can use them and wages to the man who can earn them good sanitation accessible education the maintenance of law and order an efficient public service national defence these are the very ends which Carlyle proclaimed upon the housetops and not in vain because in truth they are ends that stare even the average man in the face and cross his life and his interests in manifold inevitable ways a second quality and it goes closely with the first is sufficient superiority to selfish and to use bentham's favourite term sinister interests but then these sinister interests are not the peculiar bane of a democratic electorate they are the bane of all classes in the state and they are not least the bane as bentham would remind us of those classes who are peculiarly tempted toward them by social privilege and political monopoly still another quality is that experience of the transaction of public business which as we have seen filled so large a place in the educational outlook of mill and which comes of actual contact with the affairs of workshop friendly society trades union cooperative association political organization not less surely than it comes in other walks of life lastly and above all else important there is that sagacity shrewdness common sense call it what we may which is the cardinal quality of the practical man in all conditions of life the critic of human nature may say it is none too common carlyle for one thought it was none too common in any social stratum least of all is he disposed to admit its presence in the twenty-seven millions mostly fools yet even carlyle tells us it may be found under the peasant's roof nor in his humorous and satirical yet not unkindly estimate of the english character does he fail to credit bull despite all his limitations with a solid if silent good sense and practicality it would seem as if it is only when this noble silent people comes to politics that these saving qualities appear somehow to evaporate such at any rate appear to be the more important qualities which fit the citizen for his work and the case for democracy as against Carlyle may be said to rest upon two cardinal propositions in regard to them the one Is that they are not the monopoly of any single rank class or order in the state and the other that they exist in sufficient measure in all classes from plebs to princeps to justify a democratic franchise it is not that these qualifications need be supposed to exist in equal measure among all sorts and conditions of men few would say they do none may know better and it may be more bitterly than the hewers of wood and drawers of water the indubitable superiorities that come of an intellectual training such as their lot may have denied them none may realise more keenly and sometimes more enviously the opportunities which titled or affluent leisure may put within the reach of the man who is minded to work for public causes yet the balance does not dip wholly in favour of the educated the titled or the affluent one must never forget that among the qualifications for citizenship and it is not the least is a face-to-face personal experience of the hardships miseries and wrongs which it will remain for long a prime concern of wise legislation and sound administration to extinguish or alleviate and if this be so it is not those citizens who are naturally removed from personal contact with these things by a studious or an affluent or simply a comfortable and easy life who are best fitted either to press for remedial legislation or to judge of its effectiveness when passed nor can anything be more evident than that of a tithe of the denunciations derisions and reproaches which Carlyle hurls at landlordism and capitalism and dilettantism be merited, these classes would stand convicted of blindness and apathy to the social needs that were starting up under their very feet. Nor is it to be forgotten how much of the work of democracy lies not in itself solving problems, but in choosing men who can. For it is, of course, inevitable that modern democracy be representative its business is not to find delegates but to delegate its powers, and to record its votes for men into whose hands it can resign the initiation of measures and adjustment of details of which it is itself for many reasons inherently incapable. Its truest friends take their stand upon this ground. They plead for the independence of the representative. In the words of Macaulay when arguing for a Whig franchise, popular institutions once provided will provide the country with fit men Carlyle himself has told us that the clodpole and the featherhead have in them an indestructible instinct of hero-worship if so cannot the ordinary citizen who is neither clodpole nor featherhead be trusted to find his leader and to follow him all the more readily because he is the man of his political choice This, however, is precisely the point upon which Carlyle most decisively joins issue. The reason, above all other reasons, why, as he contends, democracy is bound to fail is that it cannot choose its true leaders. With all its greed for franchises and its inordinate appetite for elections, it cannot be trusted in the only election that is of real significance, the election of capacity and worth. Sincere and unquenchable as the promptings of hero worship may be elsewhere, the objects of its choice in politics would too surely be the surjabesh windbags of past and present, or even stump orators and charlatans worse than he, borne to power by the temporary hallelujahs of flunkeys. It is in truth far from easy to understand Carlyle's exact position here. does not seem to mean as some of his critics have averred that the born leader of men is to dragoon his followers into a servile subservience an occasional sympathy with the brass collar of girth born thrall of cedric and other methods of despotism must not obscure the fact that he insisted that all genuine hero-worship must be spontaneous and willing on the other hand he is certainly not minded to leave the follower to choose the leader, for this is precisely what in politics at any rate he abhors. It has often and justly been urged that Carlyle leaves his readers bewildered as to the precise methods by which his heroes are to be placed in power. The one point on which he is entirely explicit is that it will never be by democratic count of heads for to him the world was by its very constitution a hierarchy extending up degree above degree to heaven itself and god the maker and by consequence anything that savoured of equality and especially that instalment of equality which equalizes citizens at the door of the polling booth was a monstrous usurpation social salvation lay for him in directly the opposite direction for it turned on the hope, which till near the middle of the century was even strong and confident, that the great mass of his fellow-countrymen still had it in them, as the deepest instinct of their souls, to recognize, to honor, and to follow the divinely elected and self-elected leader of men. This was to him the everlasting adamant, lower than which the confused wreck of revolutionary things cannot fall it was the cornerstone of living rock whereon all polities for the remotest time may stand secure such leaders may be endlessly diverse and it is the glory of Carlyle that his hero-worship has so many mansions but they are to be sought for especially in two directions there are the men of spiritual insight the prophets and the thinkers who had discerned beneath all the welter and scramble of human affairs the old eternal laws that live forever. This was what he had in mind when he once said that the true struggle of the age was not between Tory and radical, but between believer and unbeliever. Believer and unbeliever in those oracles of eternal justice, by the observance of which, as he had early come to think, nations live, as by disregard of them they surely decay and die. And there are the men of practical insight the silent workers of the world men of but little speculative turn driven on by ideas of which they are but dimly conscious who nevertheless are in their lives and deeds nothing other than ambassadors of the cosmos ah yes i will say it again the great silent men looking round on the noisy inanity of the world words with little meaning actions with little worth one loves to reflect on the great empire of silence the noble silent men scattered here and there each in his department silently thinking silently working whom no morning newspaper makes mention of they are the salt of the earth to these two the hero as prophet and the hero as worker let the world hearken and all may yet be well to them Let the world refuse to hearken, and democracy, if it would but listen, may already hear the roar of the Niagara over which it is hastening to plunge. End of section 15.